0: Hi everyone, you're listening to Infectious Ideas, a podcast series presented by the National Foundation for Infectious Diseases, the NFID, where leading experts join us for thought-provoking conversations that lead to infectious ideas. Guests include humble heroes and future leaders working together towards a shared vision of healthier lives through effective prevention and treatment.
1: Welcome to the NFID Podcast, Infectious Ideas. This is Marla Dalton, NFID Executive Director and CEO, and with me is my co-host, NFID Medical Director, Dr. Bill Schaffner. Always good to be with you, Bill.
0: And the same to you.
1: As we celebrate the 50th anniversary of NFID, we look back at the history of infectious diseases and the heroes who helped advance the field, celebrating our collective accomplishments and building momentum for the future. Our guest today is Dr. Julie Gerberding, who has devoted her career to improving public health and achieving sustainable global health impact. She was the first woman to serve as director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, from 2002 to 2009, during which she led the agency through 40 emergency responses to public health crises, including anthrax, avian influenza, and the SARS-CoV-1 outbreak. In her former roles at Merck, including as former president of Merck Vaccines, she was instrumental in increasing access to vaccines around the world. She joined the Foundation for the National Institutes of Health as CEO in May of 2022. She also co-chairs the Center for Strategic and International Studies Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security. Julie, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you. It's really fun to have a chance to talk about these issues.
1: Great. So, in the spirit of the 50th anniversary of NFID, if you look back on your career, can you share what the most significant changes you've seen related to infectious diseases have been?
2: 50 years ago, we were really in an era when some people believed that we'd come to the end of infectious diseases, that we had vaccines and antibiotics, and we really had solved the problem, and people should move on to other fields of specialization, but of course, as we learned as the HIV epidemic progressed, they were quite wrong in their estimation. So I think the the big change over time has been the emergence and reemergence of so many diseases complicated by the realities of the world in which we live and the speed with which these diseases move around the globe as we just experienced but also the speed of science, which has progressed to develop so many more tools and so many more opportunities to stay on top of these issues with countermeasures and other interventions to diagnose and treat these conditions.
0: Julie, you began your career as an infectious diseases clinician in San Francisco, and you were there when the AIDS epidemic started. Can you share a bit about how that influenced you as you transitioned to CDC, first working on hospital infections, and then ultimately transitioning from a patient and then a hospital focus to the larger public health issues as CDC director?
2: You know, I think my cohort of trainees who were on the wards at the very beginning of the HIV epidemic really had a very special opportunity to learn medicine because we couldn't cure the disease. We didn't even understand the disease in those days, in the early days. We didn't know it was infectious. And yet our patients were all dying. And so we had to deal much more with the art of medicine. Our therapeutic goal may have been, in many cases, how to orchestrate a comfortable death for people. But we also learned that our patients very often knew a lot more about their disease than we did and were our best teachers to really incorporate not just the science of medicine, but the sociology of medicine with all of the extrinsic issues they were dealing with in the community. And they may have included sexually transmitted diseases, injection drug use, stigma, et cetera. When you're dealing with the disease in the context of the social determinants of health, you begin to have an appreciation for the fact that you can only do so much in the medical model and that many of the things that are causing disease and poor health are really with outside, outside the domain of the, of you know, the hospital per se. And I think in part because I spent so much of my early time at San Francisco General, which is really a public health hospital in many respects, I had a mindset that caused me to have an appreciation for the broader population health context of medicine, probably from the very beginning. So it really wasn't a big leap to go from that mindset to thinking about, well, how can we have more impact? And maybe the determinants of what constitutes a healthy society or creates well-being among people are part of a larger sphere That really helped motivate me to get my MPH at Berkeley. And from there, I was sold. It really was a a kind of a bedside to street side medicine. And I never wanted to leave the bedside entirely. And in fact, until the pandemic, I was still attending at San Francisco General, but the ability to create a broader context for health is really what motivated me to move my career in the direction that I did.
0: Well, you were certainly prescient because social determinants of health, in particularly of infections, are now very, very much on the agenda of many of us, including the CDC. Now, you've written a lot about the need to strengthen public health infrastructure, including empowering the CDC with better data systems, as well as the authority to coordinate across jurisdictions. These are critical issues and under current discussion. Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: I think we all understand that the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic has shined a very bright light on the importance of public health and public health infrastructure, but also some of the deficiencies that are longstanding and the systems that we utilize in this country to accomplish those responsibilities. Clearly, at the CDC, there were issues in performance. We might as well put that out on the table, the testing scenarios. Some of the guidance processes were less than adequate from the standpoint of the end users and the state and local health department communities. There were some performance issues, but those really, in my opinion, emerged on the backbone of a longstanding failure to appropriately invest in a modern public health system network. I was part of the Commonwealth Commission that called for the creation of a national public health system, and I don't mean a federal public health system, I mean a system that really much more effectively links the front line at the local level to the states and the CDC, as well as to the healthcare delivery system, but also a system that's properly funded and staffed by people who are well-trained and well-supported in their careers and their career development. Unfortunately, one of the most important underpinnings of all that is a data system that works. And despite more than a decade, Well, certainly during my tenure and and the tenure that Dr. Copeland and I think the tenure that Dr. Satcher had at CDC, we all knew that data modernization was important, but the investment is silly in comparison to the complexity and the challenge of really creating a harmonized data system. That is compounded by one of the peculiarities, unfortunate peculiarities of the CDC budget there are approximately 160 budget lines. Each one of those program areas may have an allocation for data systems or surveillance, but there's really very little resource to tie those things all together. So you might have, just for example, you might have a great TB surveillance system, but if that isn't linked to the HIV system or to the hepatitis C system, you're kind of dealing with a lot of Disconnected data silos and very challenging situations on the front line where people have to learn all these different systems and struggle to integrate information. Simple things, vital statistics, death rates, for example, there are still many jurisdictions where that information is faxed from one point of Input to ultimately the CDC. There is a great deal of work to do, and I think the modernization strategy that has been crafted and refreshed with Dr. Walensky's leadership is fantastic. But it really needs a substantial increase in support, financially as well as a workforce, to really pull it through.
1: You know, Julie, it's been interesting to hear you and certainly other former CDC directors talking about lessons of COVID-19 and previous pandemics and public health emergencies as well. So I'd love to hear what you think, besides the data modernization, what are some of the biggest barriers in appropriately applying those lessons?
2: Yeah, I can segue to another group that was really involved in listening and learning from the stakeholders as well as the CDC, and that is the CSIS Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security, which I co-chair. We had a work group led by Tom Insel and Steve Morrison who really dove into this over the summer. And I would say that um, you know the the performance issues. Let's just set those aside. The workforce issues. And how that played out in the requirement of surge capacity in the pandemic was really a glaring issue. We have never had an adequate public health workforce really at any piece of the system. But in the pandemic, when everyone was pulled and surged toward COVID, there was no one left to take care of basic pediatric immunization or the other infectious disease and non-infectious disease issues that require ongoing attention. But one of the strong recommendations, certainly Tom Frieden was an exemplar in trying to launch this during his tenure, was to deploy the CDC back to the states, not in the emergency response mode, but to actually embed them as part of the ongoing workforce in local and state health departments. It has two really great outcomes. One is you've got well-trained, talented people there to augment the FTEs that many state and local health departments can't higher to because they're budget limited. But in addition, that helps those people who are CDC employees really have a reality check about what in the world is actually going on at the front line, why are some of the things coming out of Atlanta not really very helpful or what would be very helpful coming out of Atlanta. And they bring their knowledge and their frontline experience back to Atlanta. That was the old model of how the CDC was so successful for so many years, but those embedding programs were lost along the way in budget cuts for various reasons. So I think one of the big lessons is you, no matter what you spend on countermeasures or better science, it's not going to be helpful if you don't have the people with the boots on the ground to really pull it through.
0: And that's been true in almost every dimension of the pandemic response. So, Julie, you've been talking about agency limitations and limitations at the local level, at the health department and at the state level. But CDC directors invariably and quite appropriately must interact also with the political leaders of the country. And I'm sure that presented its own set of challenges. So can you tell us a little bit more about how you navigated those challenges?
2: By comparison with today's hyperpolarized situation, I actually existed in government at a time when that was not my biggest concern. Of course, we're always vigilant about the politicalization of science, and science has always had a political dimension to it. We have to accept that even if we don't like it. But I was fortunate, just for example, when I was working under Secretary Thompson there was an issue that I was concerned about, and, you know, I just went to the secretary and I said, I'm really concerned about this. I don't think that this would be the right way to handle the next public health emergency. I really think CDC needs to be in the driver's seat for leading the public health response. And short story on that is that was about two weeks before the first SARS outbreak occurred, and the secretary looked at me and said, you know, you're right. And from that moment when he announced that we were going into emergency response for SARS, he said that Julie's going to run this from CDC, but she'll be on the phone with us every morning. She'll keep us informed every step of the way. The other parts of the department that have a role will also report in, we will coordinate this through the department, but we're going to lead from the CDC science. So, you know, that's Mm -hmm. a very different scenario than existed in SARS-CoV-2. And if you can think back in that time for those who were around for the first SARS outbreak, We ran the press briefings from Atlanta with scientists standing at the podium reporting on a work in progress, and that was really the time when the concept of interim guidance got invented because we knew that we weren't going to be able to dot every I and cross every T to get the science complete, but we had to make decisions within complete information. But we made it very clear that these were the best we could do right now with what we know, and as soon as we knew more, we would update our guidance or our recommendations accordingly. And we didn't really run into this kind of mistrust problem that I think has been so prevalent in the current scenario.
0: Ah, those were the good old days, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, you were a brilliant communicator at the CDC. That really helped a great deal. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, there may be some revisionist history here, but... Yeah, you know, I like to dig into that a little bit more, because earlier, Julie, you talked about some of the significant changes in public health over the past few decades. Let's take a different look at that and say what has not changed and what still very much needs to change.
2: Well, let me start with the good news, because I think one of the things that was most puzzling to me as the COVID pandemic um, world forward is what is happening at the CDC, because I know the scientists and many of the important scientific leaders of the pandemic response were the same people that I had worked with and that Tom had worked with during his tenure. And we know the caliber of public health science and epidemiology and outbreak investigation that they were capable of. So I can't attribute this to a failure of scientists. So that made me wonder, well, then what else is going on? And I've mentioned some of the structural issues, the budget issues, the failure to modernize our public health system, which we all collectively are accountable for. But I also think that you know, you have to be realistic. When there is a national crisis, inevitably, it's going to be managed by the White House. That happened during many of the public health emergencies that I was part of. It's an inevitable pull to the center of gravity of our government. And to some extent, that's important because it is a whole of government as well as a whole of society response. But I think the biggest um, challenge is that we don't consistently plan, prepare, exercise, and build on our preparedness capability. We move through the crisis, we document lessons learned, and then we become complacent and that all fades into the past. And we start all over again the next time there's a crisis. I would like to see government that recognize this is the new normal for us. We need to have institutional, governmental, strategic, ongoing evolution of our public health competency and particularly in the preparedness domain. And that needs to be built progressively in the same way that we progressively build our national defense system. This is our health defense system but our mindset just never really takes us to the finish line or at least moves the ball down the field and we end up with this constant recycling of effort and acting confused about why we are once again finding ourselves unprepared for a crisis so that a cycle of crisis to complacency is i saw it after the first sars i saw it after west nile i saw it after Monkeypox. I saw it after the Zika pandemic. We saw it after the 2009 influenza pandemic. We just really don't seem to be able to move into a state of acceptance of the importance of this and proper investment and rehearsing for our ability to be prepared.
1: It makes such sense and it seems so obvious, but clearly there are a lot of barriers in the way of that. What's the one thing you would change if you could to get us closer to that ideal state?
2: This will be sort of mundane, but I actually think we need to change the way we finance public health. This year-to-year financing is difficult. And then we surge for emergencies and rev up everything, but you can't really hire people on one-time emergency money (laughs) if they don't actually solve the problem. Really thinking about our health security in the same mental model, but also in the same financial model we use to fund our national defense system would really strengthen over the long haul our whole ecosystem of public health.
0: Yeah, for sure. You hear the same thing at the state and local health department level. Seesaw funding is very, very difficult for them to manage. And they're certainly on the same wavelength as you are, Julie. I like this whole notion of the health defense system. Now, my next question is one of those from 50,000 feet and maybe a little bit unfair because it's such a large question. But do you have some thoughts about how we can rebuild the trust in CDC and other public health agencies?
2: Boy, this is a really hard question, Bill. Mm. You may know that Um, There's an ad hoc coalition of people, the Trust in Health and Science Coalition, that last week at the AAAS meeting launched a public effort to say these 50-plus health organizations, professional organizations, etc., we intend to do our part to try to be purveyors of scientific, accurate information. We intend to... Help identify misinformation and strongly push back when we see disinformation. Everybody's working on this in their own way, but we haven't really been able to align those efforts in something that actually creates a true impact or a true difference. So our hypothesis is if we get a large number of like-minded people pointing in the same direction, sharing what they learn, building on each other's successes, that maybe we can create a more powerful voice of helpful information to people who are trying to make complex health decisions. But it's a long journey, it's a marathon. <laughs> I'm sure there'll be many times we'll be behind in the race. So if you have any better ideas, you're one of the people who is a voice of trust, and you certainly have done your part to try to create a safe place for effective and reliable health information. But we are losing
0: ground fast. Well, we're all in this together, and let's take those long journeys one step at a time and do it together.
1: I think it's marathon training, so So I fear the list is long, Julie, but I'd love to ask the question of what most keeps you awake at night these days.
2: The thing that probably concerns me the most, and this comes especially from my new role, is that... We have never had more scientific capacity to solve infectious disease problems or other health problems, but particularly vaccines and antivirals and medicines and diagnostics and understanding of the microbiome. So science is on our side. And yet our ability to apply that science in meaningful ways to help people make good health decisions or more broadly to bring that science to the front line for the people who need it most in an equitable way, not just in the U.S., but globally. It's so sad that we could do so much, and yet somehow we are failing to achieve the true full value of what our science can do.
1: And I also have many sleepless nights. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's been so wonderful having you, Julie. Before we sign off, I'd like to give you the same opportunity that we give all of our guests, and that is, what is the myth that you would most like to bust?
2: Hmm. Well, my most important myth I'm not going to put out in a public forum, but <laughs> I I do feel this whole issue of trust is a huge a huge set of myths and probably at the root of it is the myth that there is some kind of conspiracy to Convert science into something nefarious. And, you know, when it, I feel so blessed to have benefited from scientific advances in my own family that it just makes me really sad that people who could benefit from making informed health choices are just suffering because this mis and disinformation is interfering with that.
0: Well, thank you, Julie, for all of that. We've been talking today with Dr. Julie Gerberding about her insights from a rich, multifaceted career dedicated to responding to both national and global crises and improving public health. Thank you so much, Dr. Gerberding.
2: Thank you. I've enjoyed the conversation.
0: Thank you all for listening to this episode of Infectious Ideas. You can follow, like, share and download episodes on all streaming platforms, as well as find us at NFID.org with links to our social channels. We love hearing from listeners, so send us your questions, your comments, your concerns that may be infecting your mind.